Okay. Well, to everyone who's on the air with us, my name is Chandra Perdue, and I am the founder, president, and CEO of Cardone Unlimited LLC and the producer and content creator for the Unfiltered with Cara Jones Unlimited LLC podcast. Tonight, I am so excited to have my distinguished guest. Some of you know her as Natasha. Some of you know her as Tasha. Some of you probably call her Queen Tasha. <laughs> but I call her the PK Health Survivor. That is the theme of tonight's interview. Tasha is going to share with us her story about her miraculous journey through a whirlwind of healthcare conditions, issues, but ultimately survival. I'll preface this interview and share with you as we go into Tasha's story. Although the information that Tasha will share tonight is related to her in particular as an African-American female, the information that she will share the information that she will share actually are conditions that relate to all ethnic races. With that being said, I'm going to open up with Tasha and ask her a couple of questions. Per our previous conversation, you shared with me that in your teenage years, you discovered or were advised by medical professionals that you had an onset of hypertension, which is another name for high blood pressure, and diabetes, both. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, I was 16 when I was first diagnosed with both um, diseases. Um, hypertension was something that we suspected early on, um, but I had symptoms about the diabetes. One symptom was that I was used to having a regular menstrual cycle. I didn't have one for three months. Um, I was thirsty wow. all the time. I was urinating a lot. And my mom took me to the doctor. They did a series of glucose testing. And that's when they discovered that I had diabetes at the age of 16. At the um, age of 16. At the age of 16. Let me and ask was, you this. Changed for when me. you were, that was what, dear? That was a dramatic change for me. I'm sure, I'm sure. Let me ask you a question. Well, at the time that you were diagnosed, did anyone else in your immediate family um, suffer from, from those conditions? Um, my grandmother had um, hypertension. My mother had it. Um, and my mother had gestational diabetes, so she never had type 2 or type 1 until she had my baby sister, who was now 22 years old. And when she was pregnant with her, she okay. was diagnosed with gestational. And then after she had her, that's when she had um, was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. 
Okay. So when you were diagnosed with high blood pressure and diabetes, what changes took place in your life? Um, were you prescribed medications? What medical regimen um, did you encounter? So mainly I was prescribed medication for both. Um, I was on glucophage, which is a diabetic um, medication to help control my blood glucose numbers. Um, and it worked for a while. Um, I was on blood pressure medication that worked for a while. And so I never really had any issues with it until I turned 18. And I was a freshman in college at Alabama State University in Montgomery. And um, one day I got up to go to class and I couldn't move the left side of my face because I had Bell's palsy. Um, oh. And that was during that time when I felt like I, I wanted to be rebellious when it came down to my health. Um, my friends were living a normal life, so why couldn't I? Why couldn't I eat what I wanted to eat? Why couldn't I drink what I wanted to drink? So what were you consuming that you should not have been? You said, where is my mom? No, what were you consuming, eating and drinking, that you should not have been? Yeah, eating and drinking. That I started partaking in alcoholic beverages at a very early age. So I felt like okay. I could just drink alcohol and eat what I wanted to eat as far as carb-wise, and that I would be fine. But that was not the case. Okay. Stop taking blood pressure medication. You stopped taking your blood pressure medication? I did. And that was a big mistake. Okay, so with the alcohol and all these other carbohydrates, I heard you say that you were consuming. Did you have spikes in your glucose, your sugar levels? Yes, I did. Some days it would go anywhere from 250 to one time I think I reached 400. And no. that was a big level, yes. I have Absolutely. had numbers <laughs> during that time. Those numbers were extremely high, and it was ridiculous. But I was young. And even though I went to the educational classes, I still wanted to do what I wanted to do. That was just being an 18-year-old and wanting to live my life. <laughs> well, you know, when you go to college, um, oftentimes you're exposed to a lot of um, different experiences, we'll call them, socially, that you may not have been privy to as a teenager um, coming into young adulthood, growing up in a parents or, you know, home. So mm -hmm. you're out there, you're being independent for the first time, and you just want to do your own thing. Is that what I'm, you're telling me? Right. Okay. That's what it was. Um, here are some statistics that I wanted to share. Compared to the general population, African Americans are disproportionately affected by diabetes. In fact, 13.2% of all African Americans aged 20 years or older um, have diagnosed diabetes. In addition, African Americans are 1.7 times more likely to have diabetes as non-Hispanic whites. This information I've shared with you comes from the American Diabetes Association. Now, you indicated to me um, just a moment ago that while you were a student at Alabama State, you um, 
suffered Bell's palsy. Bell's palsy, mm-hmm. can you tell us what that looked like for you? What were your symptoms? That was a temporary paralysis of my face. Um, some people, it affects differently, but me, I lost all the movement on the left side of my okay. face. And my friends and close family at the time, they would call me Two-Face. That was the joke that was going around because I couldn't move the left side of my face. And anyone who knows me, they know that I try and make humor out of anything that I go through. And that's how I cope with things. So I would laugh it off and things like that. But it was basically a nerve damage that happened because I didn't take the medication that I was prescribed. And it was very dangerous because I only suffered the the effects of it for two weeks, but it could have lasted longer. But okay, and how? Okay, you said for two weeks. Okay, so did they have to during that time adjust your current medication or increase your medication mode? No, they just made sure I started back taking the medication. That was the thing. The medication was working. Okay, I didn't want to take it. But after that incident, you understood the importance of taking it, right? Mm-hmm. I did. Yes, okay. 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 Whew. I can semi-relate to that. I have not missed any medication since then. And I'm 36 Thank God. now. 18 then. Okay, I'm happy to hear that. So... As you were <clears throat> pursuing your college career at Alabama State University, mm-hmm. were there any other medical episodes out of the ordinary that you incurred? Not during that time, not while I was at Alabama State. My next episode didn't happen until 2010. February of 2010. Um, It was in in February. I was getting ready to go to work. And my husband at the time, he came in from work that morning and he said, you don't look so great. And I said, I don't feel so great, but I'm going to work anyway. And so it was about three or four hours later in the day, um, in the work day. Okay. And... My aunt got a call um, saying that she needed to come to my job. And when she got there, I was literally on the floor in a knot, balled up crying because I was in so much pain. I was bleeding from internally. Um, I was vomiting blood. And I was at the point where I was down to the bile in my stomach. So it looked like coffee grounds. Um, I was rushed by ambulance to Baptist South in Montgomery. And I was in intensive care for two weeks. My stomach had literally flipped inside out. And some people have asked, how is that even possible? Well, I didn't believe it until I saw the pictures. Um, and I was diagnosed with gastroparesis which is a paralysis of the major nerve that's in your stomach that helps digest your food. Um, It helps break down anything that's in your digestive system. And that is a form of neuropathy, diabetic neuropathy. And I have neuropathy in my hands and in my feet as well. Um, But that experience, 
was so life-changing. I didn't even know if I was going to make it home because mm -hmm. it was so scary at that time. You said that you have diabetic neuropathy in your hands and your feet. Is that during that time of the uh, diagnosis of the gastrophoresis or currently? Yes, because of the diabetes. From having diabetes from the age of 16, I experienced a lot of um, internal damage from that. So you're saying that the neuropathy was diagnosed at the same time as the gastrophoresis? Mm-hmm. It was. Yes. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I heard you correctly. Okay. That's correct. So you, um, that was after you said your college experience. And so um, mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, you, how long were you in the hospital with that episode? With that episode, I was in the hospital for two weeks. Okay. In so... You said you were working at that time. So when you came out of the hospital after two weeks, did you go right back to work? I did. I went right back. Okay, to so you were able to work. Okay. So how long were you pretty much okay before your next situation occurred? Um, I would say about two months, maybe. Um, because what would happen with the gastrophoresis, I would have a flare-up. And that flare-up would cause mm -hmm. me to vomit hours on hours on hours. To the point that I would be so dehydrated, I cannot stand up. It would hurt me just to lay down. Um, anything touching my body, my skin would just hurt because I was in so much pain from that, from the gastrophoresis. Because the nerve damage was so severe that everything, I was sensitive to every single thing. Um, and with that, I had to just deal with it as it came. And they would prescribe me uh, morphine, Dilaudid. And Dilaudid is one of the highest, narco mm -hmm. strongest narcotics that they can mm -hmm. give you in the hospital. And they would give that right. to me on a regular basis. To the point okay. that they thought I was addicted to it and I was going to withdraw, and I wasn't. Okay. You were just in pain. Yeah, I was just in pain. So two months, two months later, what happened? Um, I started, I was at work once again, started vomiting, and I tried to fight it, didn't want to go to the hospital. Being st the stubborn person that I am, didn't want to go to the hospital until it got too late. And it was like, we got to go. And I was rushed to Baptist East once again. That was a, the main hospital that we would go to when we were living in Alabama. Well, in Montgomery. We will go to Baptist East on a regular. It was like I almost had my own room there. That's how much I was there. Yeah. And it was just that scary. Okay, so when you were, when you went to Baptist East this time, was it by vehicle or ambulance? Were you transported by ambulance or were you able to, someone was able to drive you there? By car. Majority of the time, okay. I would go by car unless I was out in public and we couldn't get there fast. We, we would know that if we couldn't get there quick enough by just going by car, mm -hmm. then we would call an ambulance for me to get there. 
Okay, so you present it to the emergency room? Yeah, I will always go to the ER, and then it will um, go from there. And I will be admitted someday. Sometimes I will be admitted um, three days at a time. I will go in that night. For instance, I will go in on a Sunday night. And I'll be discharged on a Tuesday evening. Wednesday morning, I'm admitted into that hospital again because I was back sick again because I felt like they were letting me go too early. Mm -hmm. So you would go home and you would go back to work? Yeah, I would go back to work. I didn't stop working until August of 2010 when I had a, my last major episode. It was right after my birthday. I had went to Atlanta for my birthday and decided I wanted to have a birthday drink. And that birthday drink was a drink that I should have never touched in my life. What was in it? Oh, it was some of everything in that one. <laughs> it was uh, it was alcohol. Yeah, it was Hennessy, vodka, some of everything in that drink. And it was called a birthday drink. And I wanted to celebrate my okay. birthday. And so this is still during a time when you are diagnosed as a diabetic and taking medication for diabetes. Mm-hmm. During the time that you have previously been warned about the um, complications you might encounter if you consume certain complex sugars at like alcohol and carbohydrates. Right. <laughs> okay, was, I just wanted to be clear. That's, that's correct. That's correct. And okay. But it was your birthday. You wanted to celebrate. Yeah. That was the last drink that I had until after I had my transplant in 2018. Wow. So, okay, transplant. What do you mean transplant? What happens in order for you to need a transplant? What kind of transplant are you talking about, first of all? Okay. So, in 2013, my ex-husband and I decided to move to Georgia. We moved to Douglasville, Georgia. Um which is in West Georgia. And we were living with a friend. And that particular night, I got ill. And I thought it was just another gastroparesis flare-up. Well, this time it wasn't. We went to Wellstar Hospital in Douglasville, where I was admitted once again. And they did all kind of, they did the complete blood count, which most people call the CBC. And prior to us moving to Georgia, I had gone to all of my doctor's appointments and they did blood work. There was no showing of kidney or anything of that nature. Well, this particular time when I got sick and I had to go to the, to the hospital, when they did the CBC, they found out my kidneys were only functioning at 23%. No. So that sent, they were showing me that they did all the paperwork, they did a kidney biopsy, and they were saying that by the end of the year, I will be on dialysis. So throughout that year, I went back and forth to the hospital because I was still having the gastroparesis flare-ups. And okay. it was coming to my 30th birthday. I turned 30 that August. 
two weeks before my 30th birthday. My ex-husband and I did not know that I was pregnant. I miscarried and had to have two blood transfusions back to back. And that's what took my kidneys completely out. So less than two weeks later, it was September 13, 2013. I went to my nephrologist, which is my kidney doctor. I went to her and she did a direct admit into the hospital. She said, you have to go now so we can do the surgery so we can insert the port. And I have scars right now to this day. There was a port going through my, that started from here and it went all the way through my chest down to my arteries and my veins. And that port was used to do hemodialysis. Okay. And, that and what hemo is hemodialysis? Hemodialysis is when you use the blood, your blood is cleaned through a system a machine. And most people okay. do dialysis three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, or either Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. My schedule was Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And so I had the first session that would start at 6 every morning. And I would be on the machine for four hours at the max when I first started. Um, because when they did my, when they put my port in my, in my um, chest, they also did a port going into my stomach. So that way I can do peritoneal dialysis, which is dialysis that you do at home. And you can travel when you do peritoneal dialysis. So with peritoneal dialysis, there's a, the tubing is about maybe four or five feet long that's hanging out of your stomach. Wow. And you're hooked up to a machine every night. And it's like a twist that it snaps together like that. And you're hooked up to the machine and it's filtering out the um, toxins in your body and things of that nature. And so you have to empty the bags of fluid, which um, the fluid looks like it's a yellowish color, um, almost the color of concentrated urine. Um, and you empty those bags every morning and you can see the stuff floating around, the poison and the toxins that are in your system um, that you, you're filtering out. And so I had those two Things, those two foreign objects in my body and while I'm trying to adjust to hemodialysis my gastroparesis was still flaring up and while that was flaring up I lost a tremendous amount of weight I started out at 160 maybe 165 in September but by December, I was down to 125, 130. So I went from a size 10 to a size 4 in clothing. Wow. Wow. Let me ask you something. Mm -hmm. You indicated that with the peritoneal dialysis that you performed at home every night, you had tubing that was 4 to 5 feet long coming mm -hmm. out of your stomach. So how did yeah. you function with that during the day when so, you weren't doing the peritoneal? You wrap it in a circle. You coil it around in a circle. And there was a special kind of tape that we had um, that the doctor um, prescribed for me. And the tape, you would take the tube and down to your stomach. It would sit on the side. The tube will go all the way around your stomach and it would be taped to the side. So that way, 
you won't have anything hanging. But of course, I was self-conscious because I had so, lost so much weight and I felt like everyone could see the tubing through my clothes. Which some people was like, no, we can't see it. But I kind of felt like that was something to just make me feel better. But I knew it was there. And it was kind of one of those things. It's like, hey, Tasha, suck it up. As long as you're getting your health taken care of, that's all that matters. And that's what I would do. Right. Good. Absolutely. So because m many of us have not experienced, you know, peritoneal dialysis or anything like that, um, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you and you tell me if I'm going too far, okay? Because a lot of times we hear about these various conditions that people um, are diagnosed with, but we never really hear the symptoms. So I thank you for going into extended detail about the various symptoms that you experienced um, and the graphic detail and even the illustration you just did about the tubing because this helps people to kind of picture in their mind what you were dealing with. I heard you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that every morning you would have to empty the bag that contained um, the urine, so to speak, that the machine through peritoneal dialysis had extracted from you, right? Right. Okay. You said that you could see the different toxins that came out. What did that look like, the toxins? It was cloudy. Um, it's kind of like, so you know how when you take a certain beverage out of the freezer and you don't let it freeze completely and you can shake it a little bit and that frost forms in that... Frost. Uh, that's what it looks like. Oh, wow. Okay, so it wasn't anything solid. No solids, just frost. You said what well, was what now? There were no, no solid particles, just frost, foaming. So with those, I think I will go through three bags a night with changing it out. And... Um, we would have to empty, we'll empty them in the morning. And then that was pretty much it. So I didn't have to deal with it during the daytime. Um, and I did that from December until April of 2014. Um, when I caught an infection in my um, tubing. And the reason I got an infection was because I was traveling during the time. And I don't know if the area was clean or not, but it infected my catheter. And so I had to have it removed. And that's when I went back on hemodialysis. And that hemodialysis, I had another port put into my my um, chest and through my neck um, until September of 2014. That's when they started working on the port in my arm. I have on a long sleeve shirt, but you can kind of see the gist of mm -hmm. how it hangs like out of my arm. Um, right. The fish I have. Mm -hmm. And that was so I would be able to do hemodialysis um, at the clinic again. Um, it is an artery and a, main, and a vein connected together to make a fistula. And it looks about this round in my arm, um, hanging out of my arm. And with most okay. people of um, African-American descent, we our skin keloids really bad which means that mm -hmm. we have like a lot of bruising, our skin can knot up, 
and stuff like that. And that's what I have on that. Okay. Mm -hmm. I also heard you say that during that time of peritoneal dialysis that you had a catheter. Why would yeah. you need a catheter if, if you, why would you need a catheter? That's what the tubing was called. It was called a catheter. I couldn't think of it at first. But that's this what it was tubing, called. this tubing. Mm -hmm. That's what it's called. The tubing around the stomach, did it connect to your urethra down here? It went to, no, it just went into my stomach and it um, filtered through just my bloodstream. That's what it was. Okay. And you can actually okay. feel the two things sitting inside on the inside of my abdomen. You could feel it when you would touch my stomach. Not only just see the wow. the was hanging out, but you could feel the tubing on the inside of my stomach because that's how small I was and that's how frail I was. Were you still working during this peritoneal dialysis? No, by that time I had stopped working. Um the last time I worked was in September of 2010. After that last major episode, after my birthday, um, my ex-husband had, he was like, no, you got to stop working. So I stopped working. I would work here and there um, to help supplement the income. But for the most part, I couldn't work. The doctors would not allow me to work. Every time I tried to start a job, they was like, no, ma'am, you cannot do it. Go home. So how did you supplement your income? So I was, when I started dialysis that September 2013, I was able to receive SSDI, which is Social Security Disability Benefits. So I received cash benefits as well as my Medicare, which pays for my, um, that's my insurance. That's my main form of insurance. Right. And that's how um, my medication is paid for. At the time, I was able to receive Medicaid as well. Um, the only reason mm -hmm. I was able to receive Medicaid because it was funded through the um, the government at the time, and it depends on which county that you live in on what funding they have for the year. So I only received it for a year for Medicaid, but I still have my Medicare to this day. Um, and I have one more gift left on my Medicare benefits. Okay. So you said you had a cash benefit and an insurance benefit with your SSDI. Yes. And that was through what year did you say? I started in 2013 and I had the transplant May of 2018. And what I mean by transplant, I received a new kidney and I received a new pancreas after being on dialysis for so long. And then after having hypertension for so long, I received all, both of those organs at the same time. So leading, leading, I'm sorry. I said I was very fortunate to receive both organs at the same time. Absolutely, absolutely. So leading up to this transplant, um, you were on hemodialysis where you would go to the dialysis center three days a week. Mm -hmm. And you said you did that for four years. Four and a half years, yeah. My God, my God. So what symptoms, if I might ask, were you experiencing as you were leading up to the transplant? You were on a uh, transplant list? I was. Um, I was on the transplant list at Piedmont Hospital in Atlanta. Um, at the time, okay. you, I could register at several hospitals, 
but it was more so of getting to a hospital that was nearby and the fact that we lived mm -hmm. close to um, Atlanta at the time and it was easier for me to get there so in case some we got a call in the middle of the night then I'll right. be there I have to travel three and four hours just to get to the hospital so I could have my transplant and we were only so on the day Hmm? I'm sorry. I said we were only 45 minutes away from that hospital. Okay. So on the day that you got the transplant, how did the hospital notify you? What happened? What time of the day was it? Paint this picture for us. Okay. So the day before was May 26th. My ex-husband and I had just came in from celebrating our 12th wedding anniversary. And our niece had came um. to celebrate with us. We went to Marietta Diner. And we had just came mm -hmm. in about one o'clock that morning. I was upstairs and I was laying in the bed and my phone started ringing at six o'clock that morning. It was on a Sunday morning. And I was like, who was calling me at six o'clock in the morning? It was Piedmont Hospital. And at the time, my last name was McGee. And they was like, Miss McGee. And I'm like, yes. And they was like, this is Piedmont Hospital. And I was like, okay. And they was like, how far away are you from the hospital? I said, 45 minutes. They said, well, can you get here as soon as possible? I said, what's going on? They said, like, we have your organs. I said, you know, they was like, no, come on, get here as soon as possible. So I ran downstairs and I woke both of them up. And they was like, uh -huh. okay. They were panicking because they was like, what do we do? What do we do? And I'm cool as a fan when it came down to it. And I was like, okay, because Tasha, you can't sweat under pressure. Just let do what you need to do and get your clothes really? together, get to the hospital, and you can get your transplant. So I called yeah. everybody that I knew that was in, like, within a two-hour to two-and-a-half-hour radius that could get there. And so everybody pretty much made it there before or right after I went into surgery. Um, but going into... When I had that moment to myself, going into surgery, it was like, Tasha, this is really happening. You're just to get your new yeah. lease on life. And everything happens for a reason. And it was like, okay. I'm crying I too. Hmm? Yeah. I saw where Robinson 62 said, you have me crying. And I said, I'm sitting here crying, too. I'm just trying not to reach for this napkin, but I got to do it, too. <laughs> That's my aunt. That's my aunt. Okay. She, That's she good. Beautiful. My, she has been my right hand through everything. Praise God. Praise God. Yeah. God is good. She right hand. I, rem I remember I told you, I think I shared with you that my dad, had been in a car accident at the age of 32 in San Francisco, California, where I was born. Mm -hmm. And um, he lost um, in one day um, part of his pancreas, his spleen, mm -hmm. one kidney, and a portion of his liver. And he was a healthy young man um, before that accident happened, but he became an immediate diabetic, needing insulin every day. And um, he developed congestive heart failure right away. And so he was on a lot of medication. But I remember years later that on Valentine's Day in 1997, 
I was at work at a hospital. I was a manager of um, business services at a hospital in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And my mom called me. I was on my way home commuting back across the East Bay. And my mom called me and she said, Chandra, meet us at University of California, San Francisco Hospital. It's a teaching hospital. And I said, why? She says, your dad's pager went off. They said that his kidney has arrived. And just like you, my dad had been on hemodialysis for four years, three days a week. And I remember that so well because even though you, the patient, the one diagnosed with renal failure, with the hypertension, with the diabetes, you were suffering this directly. Those who are around you on a regular basis, your family, your husband, your, your children, if you have any, your parents, whoever's around your regular basis, they are also impacted by your condition. Yes. It affects them mentally, emotionally. I remember so many days, like you said, your aunt was there for you. We were there for my dad like that. So I just want to give a shout out to your aunt, Mrs. Robinson, and your husband, whoever else was there to help you. Because I don't know how it was for you, and I will ask. My dad, at some times, um, whether, you know, if he came from dialysis, he was weak. You know, he had to watch what he took in in terms of fluid and even food stuff, you know, because food, solids have, you know, soluble um, items in it. There's fluid there. Um, but, you know, it was hard. It was hard. So with you, were there any symptoms that you experienced leading up to that transplant? Like with your, that made you knew that you needed, that you were going into renal failure. What were the symptoms that you experienced that helped them to realize, you know, diagnose you going into renal failure? So after they told me that I had renal failure, um, I stopped having a menstrual cycle for 14 months. Um, wow. I've been having a regular cycle since I was the age of 10. And then for me to stop having one for 14 months, that was like, wow, what is going on? Um, my urine, I was not urinating like most people. Um, it would be drops. I never had a flow, a steady flow, um, a stream. And then it was like, I wanted to drink stuff, but I couldn't drink just any type of fluid. Like you said, with your father, I had a fluid restriction of 32 ounces for a two day period for 48 hours. Wow. That was dialysis to the next dialysis treatment. So I was limited on what I could eat. I couldn't eat grapefruit. I couldn't eat certain items certain you know certain produce and stuff like that it was because it would affect i couldn't have um milk because of the calcium in it i couldn't have um potatoes because of the potassium so it was a lot of stuff that i could not eat and i could not drink because of the dialysis and then as it got closer to me getting my transplant i want to say it was that january because i received the transplant that may so that January, it was almost to the point that I was not urinating at all. It went from those few... So you were literally... Mm -hmm. 
you would literally go to the restroom and sit down to urinate and nothing would come out the drops. Right. And sometimes it would I would have the sensation that I had to urinate, but nothing mm -hmm. would come out. Oh God, that probably was frustrating. It was. And experiencing that, that took a toll on me mentally. Not only just physically. Mm -hmm. Mentally, I knew what was going on internally. And it was a lot of stuff I didn't share with family. I didn't even share with my ex-husband at the time. Because it was days that I felt like, what is my purpose of living? Why am I going on? You know, because my thing is, I'm useless at this point. So why am I still here? And it was days I wanted to end my life. But it was like something deep down was like, no, Tasha, keep searching. Keep going. Keep going. There's a purpose and a reason for everything. Right. So I fighting. Yeah. And I'm still here now. Almost two years. Exactly. Transplant. Praise God. You know, I'm a woman of faith, I'm Christian, and so I know that my higher power, who is God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the Trinity, all three in one, and I know you are a Christian, you a PK, a preacher's kid, just like me, yes. we know who your source is, right? We know who kept you, mm -hmm. right? Do you agree? I agree wholeheartedly. When I say I had people across the world praying for me and with me, it was so amazing at the support that I had going through that time period of not knowing if I was going to make it from day to day. My mom, my aunt, my father, my dad, my grandparents, they were reaching out to people. My other aunts and stuff like that, they were reaching out to people, you know, hey, let's get this word out. Tasha needs a kidney. Tasha needs a pancreas. Let's get this out because she's going to be a survivor and she's going to have a story to tell. Hold on and, a minute. You and, said, you said, hold on, hold on, hold on. You said Tasha needs a kidney. Tasha needs a pancreas. So are you telling me you had more than one transplant? No, it was one surgery and I received two organs. So I don't have diabetes. I don't have high blood pressure anymore. Immediately it went away? It immediately went away after the surgery. And when I say, <laughs> when I woke up My God. in ICU with everybody surrounding me, it was like I was in a dream. And less than 30 minutes later, I was able to urinate and have a full stream of urine for the first time in months. That was an, an amazing feeling. And people say, so you mean to tell me, yeah, they do. We do. I don't, because I know I've lived it with through my dad, you know, vicariously through him, but you were able to urinate that quickly after you came to from the, the surgery? Wow. Yeah. So did it come through a catheter? They did the catheter? No, I didn't have a catheter. Um, well, I did have a catheter, but it wasn't, it was so that they could drain any excess fluid that was coming from the, um, from the incision. But other than that, I was able to use the bedside commode, everything. What? I have help from the nurse. So they made you get that? Hmm? 
you got up out the bed. You had to get up out the bed. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I heard, I've heard, and I saw where, you know, when people hospitalize and they have these surgeries, they make them get up because they don't want them to develop blood clots and all that. So how, okay, you got up to use the, the restroom, the, the, the bedside commode within 30 minutes of waking up. What else did you, you know, what regimen did they take you through to get you back in motion after that transplant to get out of the hospital discharge? Okay, so actually, I was in the hospital for a total of seven days after I had the transplant. The first two and a half days, I was in ICU. So, of course, I did have to have someone, I would have to call the nurses or some like, or one of the CNAs whenever I had to use the restroom and stuff like that. So, I did have to have help. Um, and then I was moved to the transplant floor at Piedmont. So that's where everyone, after they have their transplant, they're moved to this particular wing of the hospital. So I was in there for the remainder for five days. And my ex-mother-in-law, she was there with me every step of the way. When I say this lady slept by my bedside every night and didn't leave my mm -hmm. side except to go get her something to eat when she wanted to walk around the hospital, she was right there. Um, yeah. She went to the post-transplant classes with me. Um, so she was educated along with me. I had to walk around the hospital, do several laps around the hospital so they can make sure that all of my organs, no, none of my organs were lacking any functioning. So mm -hmm. I was able to do everything that I needed to do before I went home. Um, so I was able to walk. I had to have a belt. It's like a um, stability belt that they um, tie around your waist. Mm -hmm. And, and I had a walker for like two days um, walking around the hospital with a physical therapist. Um, I was on medication. Mm -hmm. When I first came out of the transplant, I started off with 13 different medications, but it equaled up to about 22 pills that I was taking three times a day. Three times a day? Mm-hmm. 60-something pills? That's correct. And now, what were they for? What were they for? They were to make sure that my body didn't reject the new organs. They were to help um, fight off bacterial infections, viral infections, anything that could have harmed me at that time. Because I was still, and even now, I'm still not fully out of the neck of the woods from this transplant. They give you three years to say that you're fully clear. Um, so I'm just approaching my second year on the 27th of this month. Um, Praise God. So, but now I don't take all of those pills. I'm down to three pills, but I take a total of nine twice a day. And those are to help their immunosuppressors and they help weaken okay. my immune system. So, because if my immune system is too strong, then my body will Whoa. reject new organs. Really? I would think yeah. that they would want your immune system to be strong to fight off potential infection, but you're saying this is to weaken your immune system. Mm-hmm. So it has I have never heard this before. And that's the scary thing with this coronavirus, and I'm still going to work every day. Um, I am doing the proper precautions, taking the proper precautions by washing my hands and things like that. And I have to be honest, I don't wear a mask all the time because I can't breathe. 
Um, but I do for mo- the most part. You have part, to I'm wear a mask. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you need I'm to wear it. I wear it. I have a custom made one too. And that's what the crazy thing is about it. But I've been fortunate to not have been affected by this. Um, I'm able to go to work every day. Like nothing has ever happened to me in my life. And that's when I say I received a new lease on life. I really did. Because my life started back over at the age of 35. And I'm blessed beyond measure. Yes, you are. Yeah, there is no way to actually describe the joy that I have because it's so scary that I know a lot of people that did not make it off of dialysis. And I've actually encouraged some of the people that are still on dialysis that were on there with me to go get tested to be put on a transplant list. And so they're doing it now because they were like, well, we didn't think it was possible until you got your transplant. And I was like, no, anything is possible. But don't the doctors suggest that you get on a list? Yeah, the doctor suggested it. um, It was a year into me being on dialysis. And she was like, Miss McGee, you want to go ahead and get tested so you can try and get your new organs and stuff like that. So I did. I went out on faith. And I went to Piedmont and I started doing a series of tests. I would have to get tested every six months. Um, I would have to do lab work. Besides what I was doing during dialysis, I had to do extra lab work. I would have to do a stress test once a year. Um, It was a whole lot of leg work, but it was worth it in the end. Absolutely. So if I heard you correctly, I'm paraphrasing, you said that when you initially were discharged, Someone is saying, D.A. James 47, love you, Tasha. Yeah, I love her, too. <laughs> She's a miracle, a blessing. So I think I heard you say, when you initially were discharged from the hospital, you were taking 66 pills a day, and then you digressed down to, what was it, nine, three times a day, so 27. Well, now I'm down to, um, I only take three different types of pills, but it's a total of nine pills, two times a day. Um, so 18, okay. Mm-hmm. So two times a day, and that's all I take now. And besides, I take vitamins, and I take um, extra supplements. But other than that, prescribed medication, I only have to take three. That's a blessing. You are a living, walking, talking breathing testimony. Yes, ma'am. There's a song that says, I am a living testimony. That is you. Tasha mm-hmm. King. May Tasha King is a walking, living, breathing testimony. And, you know, we have to give credit to the clinicians, all of the clinicians that mm-hmm. helped you along the way. We give credit, as we said before, to God you know, who we, you and I, recognize as our higher power. We thank and give credit for all of your support system. You know I'm a clinical mental health counselor, too. So it's important to acknowledge not just the physical, but you today have shared with us the mental and emotional impact these conditions had on you 
as an individual. We're almost coming to the end of our time. We got started a little late because neither one of us could get into here. Instagram was tripping. But I wanted to ask you a few questions as we close. Okay. When did you, how many months after your transplant, did you get back to, we'll say, your quote-unquote regular life, going to work and moving around and stuff like that? Six months. In six months, I was drinking my water. You're going to make me take. What? Six months? Six months. I was not working full time, but I was able to work part time until I, by that January of 2019, I was back full stream, going strong like nothing had ever happened to me. How was your physical strength? Physical strength, I still struggle with it from time to time. Um, but for the most part, I'm fine. I'm fine. I did. When you say you struggle with it, you said from time to time, do you feel? Do you feel weak at times? How do you feel? I feel weak at times. I get tired, um, mm-hmm. and I have to realize, Tasha, you, you're not normal yet. You know, you're normal, but you're not normal yet. So just take it a little bit at a time. And I, I forget that um, because I'm so used to being that person that regardless if something is wrong with me, I still say I'm okay. And I keep pushing. And I go on. I put a smile on my face and I keep pushing because not a devil in hell can stop me from doing what I'm destined to do. Robinson Strong. I know that's right. Robinson Strong for real. And I think that is that some more of your family? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So how often do you have to follow up with your doctors now? Now is once a year. Once a year. Is there, are there any other medical appointments that you have to have within the year? Um, well, now I do. I have to have another surgery because my abdominal wall opened up that August. Um, after the transplant, my body was trying to reject the new pancreas. So um, I have to have a surgery for that. But, you know, that can be continued on another conversation. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, you know, I'm just going to say this as we close. Of course, you know, I'm most grateful and thankful to you for accepting my invitation to share your story here on Unfiltered with Card Zones Unlimited LLC podcast. For those of you who don't know, how I came to know Tasha was through this virtual platform called Instagram. I actually saw her through probably somebody else's, a comment she made on someone else's post. And so then I clicked on her page. And as I scrolled through her various posts, I saw where she was sharing different, at different points in her life, what she was going through. And I sent her, a question. I think I told you I don't mean to pry, but I wanted to ask, mm-hmm. what condition was it? Because as I saw those pictures of what she was going through, it resonated with me per my memory of my dad, the late Reverend Darcy D. Purdue, who who also suffered 